2 Kings chapter 5 is the text I'll be reading from in just a moment here. And while you guys are turning there to kind of familiarize you a little bit with what it was I was doing in the SEAL teams, you know, there was a girl back home one time when she found out that I was a SEAL. She asked me if it meant that I worked at SeaWorld or something, as she put it. She didn't know. And so maybe you didn't know this. SEAL is actually an acronym, and it stands for Areas of Operations, Sea air, and land. I think people were pretty surprised when they found out that bin Laden was killed, that it was Navy SEALs that got him because the expectation was is that these guys are always in the water. So what, is there like a puddle in, in Pakistan these guys came crawling out of or something? It's like, no, we're on land. Uh, to kind of give you a feel of what I was doing on land, on the last deployment I was involved in, we were out in Iraq and we're given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and there's roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out there, we're working with this group called the ISOF, that's the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with these guys is to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. And so we figure the best way to do that is to not only train them on base, but actually go outside that wire and fight side by side with them. Well, if you can imagine a whole deployment going by, I'd say pretty good, you know, because we're changing the world. We've bagged and gagged some pretty bad dudes. We're making the world a better place. And we're coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. And we weren't really sure at that point, like, is the ISOF ready for us to be passing this baton off to them? So we decided, well, hey, for this final operation, why don't we try and make it a sort of graduation operation? We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up, and we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. And so they're starting from scratch, hitting the streets. What do they need? They need some intel. And so they find this source out there on the street that informs them about this man that's an Iraqi policeman. So now they're looking into this guy that's a policeman by day, but at night back home, as it turns out, he's one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. And to kind of give you an idea of the type of character that makes a suicide vest, oftentimes these guys that manufacture these things are not very motivated to actually be the one to strap it on themselves. In fact, they have such a, a difficult time finding somebody to raise their hand and volunteer for that position. In one instance, they couldn't find anybody. And so what did they do? Well, they went off and found two mentally handicapped women and strapped these vests onto them, fashioning them up with these suicide vests, shoving them off to a crowded marketplace as they watched from a distance like cowards setting it off with a remote, killing these women, and obviously so many more. So this kind of gives you an idea of the type of character that we're up against. But the ISOF, they've got this guy's number. You know, they figured out where he lives. They've got the plan, how they want to approach the house, get in, grab the guy, extract. They're showing it to us. And hey, everything checks out. Looks pretty good, just like we trained them. Then they had a very strange request. They said, hey, listen, would you be willing for this final operation to maybe take off your American colored uniforms and put on our colored uniforms, the ISOF? We're like, why do you want that? And their thinking was they got shot at more than we did. They thought it had something to do with uniforms. So we're like, let's follow the logic. You want us to put on your uniforms in hopes that we blend in with you in hopes that we get shot at more with you. And they're like, yes, it's like, fine. It's not about the uniforms. And so we get their uniforms on. You know, we know it's about the way that we shoot, move and communicate. We get the uniforms on. I'm walking around on base. I got the Iraqi Special Operations Force uniform, and I'm getting strange looks. You know, my dark complexion, start growing a little facial hair, then get on an Iraqi uniform. The guys on my team are like, hey, Williams, you're starting to blend in with these guys around here. I'm kind of looking around like, yeah, all right. I'm embracing it. I'm standing up on the Humvee, the section called the turret on this final operation. You see it in the movie sometimes, that guy that's standing partially out of the vehicle. They got a weapon in front of them. Well, the weapon in front of me on this night is the 50 caliber machine gun. And for those of you in the room that might not know, uh, let's just say that's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. 
I got my night vision goggles on, looking through my green little world, just going over this mental inventory. I'm thinking about how I know how this night's going to go. I know my weapon is headspace and time. That means it's ready to go. I know where this guy lives, the plan, how we're going to approach, get in, grab him, extract. And then there's one unique thing I know about this operation that truly makes it just different than every other operation. I know this is it. This is the final operation. And then my mind kind of wanders to, man, just a matter of days from now. I'm going to be back in my hometown, surfing in the ocean. But here's what none of us really knew about that night, was that we were actually being set up the entire time. To get thrown into, I'd say, by far the worst circumstances we've been in on this entire deployment as we get set up on an ambush. And now, suddenly, we're engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And it truly was the team's ability to shoot, move, communicate, do what we do best in the teams that led to, I think, the obvious conclusion, I stand alive before you this morning, But we do need to remember that, unfortunately, it doesn't always work out so great. It doesn't always work out that way. And so we ought to recall that our freedoms are not free. And what are they paid for in? When you think about it, they're paid for in. It's the currency of our soldiers' blood on the battlefield. And there's spiritual application to that as well, because when you consider eternal freedom, it was fought for, it was paid for in the currency of the Savior's blood at the cross. And so if time allows, we'll get more into how that ambush played out. But most importantly, I want to be getting into God's word here. And so we're going to get into 2 Kings chapter 5, reading the story of a soldier by the name of Naaman. And I think you'll see pretty quickly here, this guy, he could have been a seal had there been such a thing during his time. 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it goes like this. It says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and they brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. And then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master saying, thus and thus is the girl who's from the land of Israel. Then the king of Assyria says, go and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed. And he took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. Quick translation, he's bringing along the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars in gold, silver. He's prepared to pay this guy off. Let's jump ahead to verse 9. We find Naaman in route. Verse 9, he is on his way. Keep in mind, this is enemy-occupied territory he's going to. And it is not a short trip, 150 miles. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and he went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand, call in the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana, the far part, the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, Wash, be clean. So he went down. And dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Relevance of this passage coming up shortly. 
If I could just build a little bit of that road to becoming a seal and what leads up to this passage here. For me, fresh out of high school, attending a local community college, you know that saying is very true, uh, that if you aim at nothing, you will hit it. Unfortunately, that was my aim at that time. I find myself failing all my classes. It's my own fault. I'm not showing up. I'm ditching. I'm taking off, hanging out with friends. Now it's the end of the year. Time to take this big test we all dread, finals. Well, I didn't prepare for that. For whatever reason, it took that moment for me to go pulling into the school parking lot for to just hit me in the face this realization of, hey, I'm turning out to be a loser. I mean, the kind of guy that no young person wants to be. And when we're young, we get told things like, hey, you could do whatever you want to do with your life. The sky's the limit. Big word potential gets thrown around. And that's all very true. But there does come a certain point in life where you need to kind of question, like, hey, what trajectory am I on right now? And so realizing all my peers are passing me by, I'm not even making it at the local community college level. How do I turn this all around? I'm sitting there in my truck and boom, I've got the perfect plan. I go, I know what to do with my life. I'm going to go become an Alaskan crab fisherman. (laughs) Deadliest catch, right? By far one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. I almost settled my mind on that. When this other idea popped into my head, wait, no, why can't I go join the military and be a part of the most elite, go through that most difficult, grueling military training? I want to be a Navy SEAL. And so I just made up my mind, sitting there in my truck about to take finals. That's what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so my first order of business is this. If I'm going to be a frogman, I don't need to go to class anymore. I took off out of that parking lot with a smile on my face. Never took those tests. But of course, I got to let dad know. Bad news and good news. So I let him know the bad news, what's going on at school. He's face palming. And then he wants to know, okay, wait, what's the good news? Well, I'm waiting for that. It's all right, dad. I got a plan. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so you could put yourself in his shoes. Like, here's your son that hasn't demonstrated the discipline it takes to make it through the local community college level. But now he's informing you, it's all right, I got a plan. I'm going to be a SEAL. So he's telling me, you know, son, just so you know, if you join the military and maybe then you find out it's not for you, or suppose you quit and don't make it through SEAL training, just to be clear, you'll still be in the military and you're probably going to pick up a job like Chip and Payne off some boat off some coast like Japan. Well, for whatever reason, that was probably one of the most motivational speeches I could have heard from him at that time because I was the kind of guy, kind of still am, that if you imply you think that I can't do something, I'm bolting down on it. I want to do it even more. So I know actions speak louder than words. And so I'm just doing all the preparation. Well, as days go by, he invites me inside. He says, so you really want to do this? I'm thinking dad's getting on board. I'm like, yeah, dad, I want to do this. He goes, great. I set up a workout for you with the Navy SEAL. Check out my computer screen. And I'll never forget, as I'm panning over towards this computer screen, thinking, my dad doesn't know any Navy SEALs. Like, what is this? All it says in this email is, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? And I'm like, all right, dad, play? Like, dad, you met some guy off the internet who says, he wants to play with me. You're arranging this whole meeting right now. He goes, oh, he's he's trying to, like, let me, he's a SEAL, son. I'm like, you can't trust everything someone just tells you off the internet, dad. And he goes, no, this guy's a SEAL. I'm like, all right, if you really want me to go meet up with this guy, I guess I'll go meet up with them. Well, as it turns out, there's more of a conversation that took place on a phone call prior to that email that I didn't know about at the time, and I didn't find out about until months later over lunch with the two of them, but I'll give you the backstory up front. So on the phone, he gets him on there, and he says, hey, look, my son wants to be a SEAL, but here's the deal. He has no idea what he's signing up for. He doesn't know he's getting involved in. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to do me a big favor. Would you be willing to meet up with my son? And what I'm asking you to do... I need you to just crush him, like bury him, beat this desire of becoming a seal out of him. And so I thought about it for a while. 
And that was his response. Can Chad come out and play tomorrow? So I have no idea what I'm getting involved in. I'm meeting up with the Air Coast Navy SEAL in a beach parking lot. And this guy does kind of look the part as he's calling me out. You, Chad? I'm like, uh, yes, sir. All right, Bubba. I was Bubba from that point forward. Get on over here. He's got me dropped down. I'm doing push-ups for him and sit-ups and pull-ups. He sends me on a run. Says he's going to catch up with me that he had some things he wanted to take care of back at the truck. So I'm off on this run. Only direction I'm given is go out into the wetlands, off into, you know, this, this dirt trail away from the ocean. And so 15 minutes into the run when he should be there, I'm looking back and I'm not seeing him. And I'm running a little bit more, looking back, still not seeing this guy. Now I get this idea in my head, like, hey, maybe, maybe. I'm too fast for this Navy SEAL. He can't catch up on the run. And so I'm celebrating now. Like the pride is creeping in. And I look back again, like in celebration, like where is he? And it is like a scene at a Terminator 2, that guy that could like morph into knife hands and chase down the moving vehicle. Like, oh man, there he is, the T-1000, he's coming. I mean, he looks like a canine that got let out of the back of a squad car. He is closing in. And he catches right up to where I am, and I never saw what was coming next as he got just ahead of me, and that's when the physical assault began. I am greeted by his fish just going right into my stomach. He's knocking the wind out of me. I'm dropping to the ground, pooping dirt up all around, and it does not stop there. He is jumping on top of me now like a madman. I mean, he's got me by my shirt, and he's ragdolling me. I still remember that sound, just the threads of my shirt ripping and feeling the spit flying out of his mouth as it's hitting me in the face. He's screaming, and you gotta put yourself in my shoes for a moment here. Out there in the wetlands at the time, the only intel I'm operating on is this. Some guy my dad met off the internet. I'm thinking human predator, you know? Like, he's got me in his grips. And so I'm just trying to survive, and then I hear these words come through. He says, you want to be a Navy SEAL? You better stay three paces behind me. All I can say is right there, that moment totally changed the rest of my life. I realized this is it, and this is for real. That the way I respond here, if I quit, I'll forever be a quitter. Like the way I respond now is going to affect the trajectory the rest of my life. And so he gets up and says it again, three paces, turns, takes off, shows no mercy. And I'm just going after this guy. And I just did everything I could to stay locked in on his heels as we're going down this trail. And I can say that even having gone through all of SEAL training, I never suffered through a singular workout the way I suffered on this workout. I shouldn't even call it a workout. It was a beatdown session with this encounter with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvenston. But we finally get to this point where he ends it. And so he's kind of wrapping things up, pacing back and forth. And I don't know what's going on inside of this guy's head. I don't know what's next. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't want to set this guy off. I don't want to project to him that I'm willing or wanting to fight him. I'm like this, I'm a teenage skater kid, you know? And so I'm just having this self-dialogue. Like, okay, Chad, no direct eye contact. Just keep him in your peripherals. Don't look him in the eyes. And he breaks this really awkward tension by pointing at me for a second time that day. And he goes, hey, if we would have gone another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? I told him I came from the heart. I just kind of shrugged and said, Scott, I'll die before I quit. Well, he gets this big smile on his face now, completely changes. And he goes, great. Hey, you want to meet up again for the workout tomorrow? And I'm honestly thinking like, are we going to address the flashback this guy just had on the trail? And then I thought, don't bring it up. You might trigger that response again. And so I was just trying to keep everything copacetic. I was like, yeah, that's cool. Well, come to find out. Uh, that it was all a big setup. I didn't know about that at the time. It was over lunch with the two of them. I find out he called my dad after that and says, look, I know what you want me to do. I gave it a go, but I think your son might have what it takes to make it. I'd like to start working with them. So from that point forward, I began to meet with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvenston. And thankfully, 
Thankfully, it was no longer a beatdown session. It became more of a, a building up. In fact, I moved on in life from being Bubba to suddenly one day I become Junior. You know, all right, Junior. <laughs> and so he really took me under his wing. And Scott, I could say, is an extraordinary Navy SEAL. He holds all kinds of records. One of them just you will not comprehend. He's the youngest man to ever make it through SEAL training. He completed SEAL training, not started it, completed it by the age of 17 years old. You want to talk about a guy that wasn't the victim of his circumstances, that just said, well, this is, this is the deck of cards in life I've been dealt. He grew up in over 20 different foster homes, and so the military says, yeah, send that troubled youth our way. SEAL by 17. He's a world champion pinathlete. He's the fastest Navy SEAL in the SEAL training obstacle course. He was the only man, you'll like this one, to beat the beast on a TV program called Man vs. Beast. You know what he did? He raced a chimpanzee through an obstacle course and pulled ahead of the monkey on monkey bars. You could YouTube that one. Check it out sometime. And so you can imagine what it's like to have him train me. And so he got me ready. And so I sign up. I got a date. It's set. And he took an opportunity. He put it just before I was leaving. He's going to go overseas for one last deployment. And so he leaves just before I leave. And he's on the phone with me, kind of giving the goodbye phone call, telling me, all right, Junior, about to go do this thing. He's referring to going off to Iraq. And he says, I want you to know something, though, that I've never told anyone. I've ever trained before. So... I mean, put yourself in my shoes. I am listening. And he says, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And just, yes. Like, to hear those words from my mentor, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to make him proud, to actually go do something with my life, stop being this loser in the junior college parking lot. Like, go become a SEAL. And so we say our goodbyes. We get off the phone. He's reminding me of the timeline. The plan was is that he was going to be back in time to see me start training. And so now he's gone. And I'm up one day. I'm getting ready to go off to boot camp. And as I look at the TV screen, it's like, whoa, who do I see on TV? It's Scott on TV again. You know, he's on TV for that Man vs. Beast program. He's on TV for combat missions. He's on TV all the time because he's this phenomenal athlete. Everyone wants him. The strange thing was that the timing, I thought he's supposed to be off in Iraq right now. Maybe he had one little gig to knock out before he goes. And so I'm looking at the smiling picture of him, and this is all happening in a matter of seconds. I have a million thoughts, and I see in the lower third of the screen, Scott's birthday, followed by a dash, and then March 31st, 2004. And before I could process in my mind the obvious meaning of that, it just wasn't translating, and it switches from the smiling image of Scott to the next scene, boom, graphic video footage of a vehicle engulfed in flames in Fallujah, Iraq, which turned out to be the very vehicle that Scott was in, along with three other Americans, as this group of insurgents had ambushed the vehicle and they documented, they videotaped everything that they had been doing from that point forward. And the media is playing these different scenes where it's Scott and these others being ripped out of the vehicles, so they're lifeless. This angry Iraqi mob has surrounded their bodies and they've gathered sticks and rods and they're doing everything they can to try and just mutilate them. Wrapping rope around their legs, they went dragging them through the streets of Fallujah strung them upside down from the Euphrates River Bridge, and I can't even move. I'm just frozen watching this on the screen. And then they set their bodies on fires. They hung them upside down, and then they chanted into the camera face-to-face. -face. They're chanting a message for all of us in America to hear, and all I could say is I really did hear this message loud and clear. They were chanting, Fallujah's the graveyard of Americans. Fallujah's the graveyard of Americans. I think pretty needs to say I'll, have, I'll never have the words to describe what that moment and like all the surrounding moments were like, I definitely went through the full spectrum of just how you deal with 
you know, just the, that type of, of grief and adversity. And I'll be honest, one of the things I landed on, I say I heard that message loud and clear, is I landed on a sense of hatred I'd never experienced before. I wanted revenge so bad. I felt something come into me that I'd never felt before. I don't even know how to put it. I, when I thought about becoming a Navy SEAL, I always thought about the cool aspects. You get to learn how to like be like the movie stars, right? Like shoot, move, communicate, jump out of airplanes, blow things up. I realized that, you know, you might have to take life. That's part of the job. But I didn't entertain that thought very much. I just didn't focus on that. So I go cross that bridge when I get there. I'm not only thinking about it, I am hungry for it now. All I want to do is get through that TV screen and go throw myself at these guys without the training, recklessly. I didn't care. I wanted to take them out. And so I enter into SEAL training, and I wrote Scott's name on the inside bill in my hat, and I remembered his words to me when he said, Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. My thought was, as I'm in SEAL training, you have to take me out of here in a body bag before I ever quit on that name. It's not happening. And so with his name right there, getting me through the toughest moments, I think the numbers do speak for themselves. How difficult is it? Well, 173 guys started my class, all pounding their chest saying the same thing. Oh, we'll die before we quit. And in order for you to quit, you ring a brass bell three times in front of everyone signifying you've quit. And you have to lay down your, your helmet with your family name on it and your class number and your rank. And those helmets stay out there under that belt all throughout steel training. It's like a graveyard, these tombstones of these guys. Out of 173, who's still there by graduation day? There's only 13 of the original class numbers still standing there. But I remember walking out thinking, Scott, we did this. You know, <laughs> I... I remember right where I was stepping as I thought, we did this. I got family, friends there. As they get to see that moment where you're getting pinned in the chest with this trident, it's our insignia that says, welcome to the brotherhood. Like, this is your new identity. The thought of like, well, I'm no longer that loser in the parking lot, right? Where I'm telling my friends, I'm gonna go try and be a seal. And they're like, yeah, good luck with that one. It's like, ah, oh, no, I made it. I've done something now. And then for so much more in honor and memory of my mentor. And so it was one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments of my life. But here's the strange thing, is it didn't take more than 24 hours, I'd say, before it seemed like the wind slowly began to come out of that sail and everything began to go downhill and circle the drain from that point forward. And I honestly could not wrap my mind around why, like why at the time. I mean, I just achieved the ultimate. I thought once I became a seal, life would have more meaning. I would be set. Everything would just kind of coalesce. I could kind of live off of that one for the rest of my life. Nope. And it was years later I heard these words that finally made sense of that day. By a Christian philosopher, he says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, and in the end, it lets him down. What he's referring to right there, I think it does resonate with many of you in the room because you've experienced it at least to some degree. We refer to it as sometimes the human condition or the grass being greener on the other side, never quite satisfied or fulfilled with where you're at. Well, what do you want? I just want a little bit more. And we buy into this belief that if I just had this, maybe it's a goal, achievement, a status, climb that corporate ladder, make more money, or it's like a relationship goal. I'm just missing that significant other in my life. Or maybe what we need is some, some kids, some little ones running around the home. Oh, no, we need, we need a bigger home. We need to move up in society. And so we keep moving the bar, believing if we just hit this achievement, the status, that will give us fulfillment. But what happens? What happens is you come up with the goal. The goal leads to the hunger. The hunger leads to the drive, the hard work, the discipline. You get there. You eat it up. You're satisfied just like you thought you would be. But what happens? The satisfaction doesn't last like you thought it would. And so what do we do? 
well, we're thinking human beings, and so we just step back for a moment. We do a little introspect, and a light goes off in our head. We think to ourselves, you know what? The reason this didn't give me lasting fulfillment, I think I figured it out. It's because I didn't go for something big enough. If I want it to last, I know what I need to do. I need to raise the bar. I need to go to that next rung of the ladder. So that's exactly what we do. Now we're thirsting after this new goal. It's higher up there. And we're doing all the hard things to get there. And you achieve and you drink it up. And this is the one. You are satisfied just like you thought you would be. But what happens? It's like a vicious cycle. You just get hungry and thirsty all over again. And seemingly there just is no end point. But there is an end point. And that's kind of the whole point to that quote of one of the loneliest moments. So I think the big question is this, what happens, friend, when you have arrived at a place where you no longer, like all the previous times before, can say, I know what to do, I'll just go to the next rung of the ladder. No, you can't do that this time. Why not? You're at the last rung of the ladder. You can't say, I'll just gain a little more elevation, climb this mountain higher. No, not this time. Why not? You're at the peak of the mountain, and there's nothing left to climb after this one. And like all of the other times before, you're hungry and thirsty for more, but Unlike all of the other times, this time, there is no next. That's where you get those words. One of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate. In the end, it lets him down. You see this all the time. You've experienced it to some degree. Look at the people that have climbed their version of the top of the world. The rock stars, the movie stars, the professional athletes, and secretly underneath it all, they're miserable. Even a guy like Jim Carrey, he's no believer, but this is what he says. He says, to paraphrase him, he says, I I just hope, I wish that everyone could become rich and famous and have everything that they ever wanted so that they would know it is not the answer. That comes from someone that has experienced it all. Or how about C.S. Lewis? You know, he says, if I find within myself desires in which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I am not meant for this world. And Jesus puts it best. He says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but in the end loses his soul? And so if our aim in life is to try and find some type of fulfillment in something external other than God, it will never live up to that position. And whatever is God in your life is that thing that you are aiming at, that you hunger for, that you thirst for, that you spend more of your time, more of your energy working towards. That's the thing that you worship, whether you would admit it or not. And so what happens is we take these other things and we make them the most important thing in our life. And they can never live up to it. And we have to be careful what we put there. You know, sometimes people say, my reason for being, my reason for living is my family. Family's pretty up there. I would say it's right under where God belongs. But don't ever put a spouse or your children, don't put that that burden on them. They can't live up to that for you. Only God belongs in the throne of your heart and of your life. And then once he's in his proper place, everything else takes its proper place after that. That's where you get in the scriptures. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so in becoming a seal, making that, in a sense, God of my life, well, it couldn't live up to that. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty for more, and I think I'm at the top, though. There's nothing really next after this. And so I just went into this miserable state. I was secretly more miserable at that stage of my life than I'd ever been. I got family and friends kind of like, you did it, you became a seal. And I, I didn't, I didn't want to let them know how I really felt underneath it all. So I just play into it. Woo, yeah, living a dream. But I realized miserable. And here's what I realized looking back is since I had no peace with the creator at that time, that's why I had no peace in my life. And because the creator was not the preeminent one, I wasn't seeking first the kingdom. 
So practically speaking, I mean, I would say I believed in God. You know, my family, they'd be like, we're praying for you, because they would see. I kind of adopted that work hard, play hard mentality. Once I was in the teams, I was like, well, if anything to look forward to, let's get a little revenge for Scott. That's not exactly great motivation to live for. And in the meantime, since I really felt like I just don't feel anymore, what is it that makes me feel? What is it that stimulates me? Honestly, at that time, I, I liked God drink, cut loose with the guy. That made me feel a little something. And even the Bible admit, yeah, sin, sin is fun for a season. Uh, but in, in the end, it really is just personal robbery. You know, and I would just take things too far, drinking into an oblivion, right? Just blackout, drunk, wake up in places that I don't even know where I'm at. How do I get on this carpet, this rug over here? And then people I don't even know are like, hey, man, like, do you remember what you did last night? It's like, no. And just being informed of all the foolishness and trying to laugh it off as if it's something to like laugh about when in reality, it's just personal shame and robbery. I really would put my family through a lot because I would wake up in some other place. I would use the hometown as a crash pad and you know, one night everything really came to a head where I ended up needing to get 26 stitches in my knuckles for a thing I don't even remember. And my family's letting me know after I'm coming back a little bit that you came home like a maniac and you're spreading blood all over the walls. We're trying to get control of you. And they're, they're concerned. They're saying, look, you're gonna get yourself killed or somebody else killed. I wish I could tell you I felt remorse. But at the time, I thought it was comical. And I was like, whatever. And I felt no remorse. And then now they're telling me though that I'm not welcome at the home anymore. And so I was like, all right, whatever. I didn't even care. But I did care about one thing. I did have a keg of beer stashed in their garage I wanted to get to. So I get stitched up by the dock. I come back to hometown, and I want to go get that little keg of beer, go out and party again. And my dad's confronting me. What are you doing here? So I realized, all right, it's pretty serious. And I know what they want. They want me to go to church. All right. So I thought, all right, I'll suffer through this. I'll go to church. I'll punch my card in. I haven't been in a while. And just by going, it'll make them happy. I'll fall off their little radar. And then later that night, I'll go do what I wanted to go do. And so I'm like, all right, I'll go. They're like, you will? I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll go. So we go. And there's a man speaking there that night uh, by the name of Greg Laurie, which that movie is out, yeah. And uh, he opens up to this Second Kings chapter 5. And I'm listening to this story thinking, at least if I'm going to come to some church thing, I get to hear a story about a soldier. And now let me just take the rest of this time to focus on this passage here in 2 Kings chapter five. If you remember Naaman, he's had great success in battle. He's got this entourage of men that highly respect him. He's highly regarded. Even the king enjoys Naaman's company. I mean, look at this status that he has as this mighty man of valor. Where is it getting him? He's getting into the VIP meet and greets. Like even the king wants to rub shoulders with Naaman. He's this mighty man of valor. Sounds like he could have been a seal, but Naaman had leprosy. And how bad is leprosy? Let's just say, yeah, it's a little worse than a case of eczema, you know? It doesn't just clear up. Uh, Jesus, looking back, said nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. So it's terminal. He's a dead man walking. And so now kind of circle back and picture Naaman's life like this, if you would. You know, so much for all that success. So much for this outward man, this mighty man of valor. It's all the persona. It's all the facade. What's really going on underneath the armor that doesn't meet the eye there? Naaman, what's really going on underneath that clothing that we might not all see? Well, what's really going on, he's pretty vulnerable. He's deteriorating. He's falling apart. He's literally a dead man walking. Well, how quickly I relay with that man right there as I was listening. Because remember, I'm wearing the armor. Like, I got it all together. I'm a seal. What's the truth? Secretly, Inside, man, I'm just, I'm deteriorating. I am falling apart. I feel like that dead man walking. And just by the law of averages in a room this size, it's highly likely there are some of you in this room today just like that. 
you know, that you come in here with being a certain person on the outside, right? And for the coworkers and family members and friends, like you got it all together, but what's the truth? Underneath it all, you know the experience. You're falling apart. You are that dead man or dead woman walking. And so I'm listening. And no doubt about it, Naaman has probably tried everything he could try to do to fix himself of this leprosy, right? Uh, but this is terminal. It's impossible. But he hears about this prophet, right? Little servant girl is the unsung hero in this story. She's the evangelist. She speaks up, says, if only my master with the prophets in Samaria, you would heal him of his leprosy. Such faith. And he decides, all right, I gotta, I gotta go try this. It's like suddenly hearing about an experimental treatment that you haven't tried yet. And perhaps this could save my life. And so he's ready to throw some money at it. He's bringing the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars. He's going to enemy occupied territory. He's got a, an approval from his king, like rite of passage to get over there, gets to the door. And what is the expectation? Well, this guy should probably have the red carpet out for Naaman. Does he have any idea who Naaman is? But instead he sends a servant to the door and the servant relays this message of basically go just dip yourself in the water. He's thinking, just wash it off. Think I haven't tried that where I'm from? In Damascus, where I have cleaner waters, far better than all these waters in Israel, yeah, if I could go wash it off, why not go do it over there? And so he turns and he leaves in a rage. You know, gotta wonder what's going on inside of his head. He says what the expectation was. Starting off with this expectation up, I expected that guy to come out of his place. He thought he was gonna roll out the red carpet for him. It's almost proportional. If more important of a person you are during that time, the farther they come out to greet you. Like if you're a king, where are the people? Where's the welcome party begin? Not outside on the front porch. They're outside the city gates. That's where it all starts. At the very least for Naaman, this guy should have been out there. But instead he gets treated like a normal and it infuriates him. And so he's leaving in this rage. He could probably just about have that guy's head right now. And the sad thing is, if he continues in that direction, what happens? Remember, it's terminal. He dies. Here's the cool part is Naaman's surrounded by some men that really care about him. They're looking out for him. And I'm sure they don't know exactly how this all works, but they know this much. We need to get our name back over there. We need to get our Naaman back over there in front of that God of Israel and then step back and let God do his thing. We need to be inviting people to church. We need to be getting them in front of the message about the God of Israel. You don't have to be so eloquent and have all the words, but just step back once they're there, let God do his thing. You know, there's a statistic out there that says the vast majority of people that are unbelievers, secular people, atheists, if they just had a friend, if they just had a family member that invited them to church, the majority of them say, I would go. At the very least, can we do that? You know, there's an atheist named Penn Gillette. He's a very famous Las Vegas magician. He's an atheist, an illusionist, uh, very outspoken about these things. And I'm pulling up a quote from him right now because it does come to mind. So it's worth sharing. If I can find it here, I wasn't planning on sharing it. But this atheist calls out Christians that don't share their faith. He calls out Christians that don't actually bother to evangelize. He asks this in this video. He says, I've always said, it's called Gift of a Bible on YouTube. You can check it out. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. He's talking about evangelize. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. He goes, how much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? He says, I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt, 
that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I will tackle you. And then he goes on to say, and this is more important than that. That's from an atheist. He says, look, Christian, I don't believe what you believe, but wow, if you believe it, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe it's true and not be sharing that with them? And so thank you, Penn Jillette. Thank you. And in fact, thank you, because I could really use that, not just as a motivation, but I could tell people on the street when I'm a little concerned, I can say it to the lady that's cutting my hair, you know, that is being very forthright about the sinful life that she's living. And I'm thinking I should share the gospel. I feel compelled to do it. But Lord, she's going to cut my ear off if I bring up Jesus right now. Like she's going to go off on me. So, all right. Hey, have you ever heard of Penn Jillette before? Oh yeah, I've heard of Penn. Yeah, he, he, you know, he's an atheist, but he calls out Christians in this video. Oh yeah, what's he say to them? Well, he says that, you know, basically if you're a Christian, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not share that with them? And she goes, yeah, all right. And because I don't hate you and I care about you, would you please allow me to share some things with you? And it's like, all right, they'll listen to you. What you did is you just diffused the bomb that normally goes off when you bring up that name Jesus and they go, oh, you judgmental Christians, you think you're so much better than everyone else on your pedestal and you hypocrite. It's like, no, I just shared the motive because I don't hate you, because I, I, I care about you. I want to share some things with you. And so thank you, Pendulette, for that. And I say thanks because we could all use that just with whoever it is. Use that at Thanksgiving, at Christmas. It diffuses the bomb, all right? Yeah. Gift of a Bible, that's the name of that video. And so these guys, they're just trying to do whatever they can to get him in front. And he decides, all right, I'll do it. And who knows how God uses that? God could speak through a donkey if he wants to, right? Like he doesn't need our brilliance. He just needs us to be faithful, right? It's the little things that we say that set off some kind of butterfly spiritual effect. That's how the spirit works. It's like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from and where it's going, but it works. God just needs you to use the word Use that to channel it through, right? And so he decides he's going to do it. I think he's getting the right conviction now. He knows it's not the water. It's not the water that's going to fix me. It's the God of Israel. That if I'm faithful, he'll be faithful, and he'll do the heavy lifting. And so he's making that walk. He's humbling himself before God, and he's dipping. His real issue all that time was way beyond the leprosy. That was just a surfacey symptom of a much deeper issue, which was what? It was pride. And if we're being honest, is that not the number one problem for all of us? If you think about any sin that you have ever committed, it's pretty much all impregnated with pride. It's a sense of entitlement. It's a sense of like, well, I deserve. It's, it's I, I, I. It's what started like Satan, Lucifer. He thought I could raise myself above the most high. Adam and Eve, they were caught up in the lie. The father of all lies told them you could be like God. And they thought, yeah, even though God put everything under my feet, He's given me dominion to rule over all of it. There's just one thing that God didn't put under Adam's feet. Apparently it wasn't enough. God didn't put himself under his feet. Adam wanted to be like God. And so he fell into it. And so this pride that we have, and there's a constant battle. It's never like you set it and forget it, but you do have to come to one point where you really deal with it the way that Naaman did, where it's a, a, a turning away and an agreement with God, a turning away from darkness towards light. And so Naaman humbled himself, dipped seven times, comes up, and in the literal Hebrew, the picture is he had brand new skin like that of a baby. This gets personal because it's pointed out then that just as Naaman had his leprosy, we all have a disease. And apart from God spiritually speaking, we are all spiritually lepers. Naaman had this disease, leprosy, and it leads to death. And remember, there's nothing he could do to wash it off of himself. Apart from God, 
as spiritual lepers, we all have a disease and you could call it this morning, S-I-N positive. And guess what? The wages of sin is death. And that's not just a mere physical death. This is what the Bible refers to as et- separation from God, eternity. It's the second death. It's, it's, it's a place where, I mean, Jesus didn't sugarcoat it. So why should I pull any punches when he didn't? Let him speak for himself. It's so serious that he says that if your right eye causes you to sin, it'd be better off for you to pluck it out and cast it from you than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Or if your right hand causes you to sin, the same. Uh, that it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. It is a horrible place of outer darkness. It's separation from God. And why does he bring that up? To scare you into heaven? No, it's not a scare tactic. It's the same way that if you really care about somebody that's caught up in some type of, uh, like, some type of habit that is very dangerous to them, like substance abuse, out of love, you will share with them the consequences of that, that this is going to harm you and it harms those all around you. And so he doesn't want anyone to go. So he's trying to make us aware of the consequences of this apart from the creator. So that's the nasty consequence of our sin. And there's nothing we could do to get sin off of ourselves. But what did Jesus do? God sent his son down into the world You could say he dipped him down into the world on a rescue mission, and he lived a sinless life, a wholly perfect sinless life. Another crazy statistic that came out recently is that uh, there is a very large sector of self-proclaimed Christians, they would identify as Christians, churchgoers, say that they don't believe that Jesus was sinless. It was like over 30%. What? Hey, if he wasn't sinless, then he can't save you. Then the cross was ineffective. He has to be the sinless one. He was pure, holy, without blemish. It says that he did not sin in 1 Peter, that there's no deceit in his mouth, tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Not for one split second was he a sinner. For he, speaking of the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in him. So at the cross, here's a picture. This is what Jesus came to do. Not to be an example for you, that's part of it but the main mission he came on was to save his people from their sin. So at the cross, Jesus trades skin with you and I. He takes our leprosy, as it were, our sin upon himself so that we can be lavished with God's grace and his mercy. Pays the penalty of our sin in full at the cross and then is buried and he rises again from the grave, conquering the power of death. And again, that's another one where there's no version of Christianity without belief in the resurrection. In fact, it's in the scriptures, Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, what that God raised Jesus from the grave, then you shall be saved. So you can't say, well, I got Christianity, but maybe the verdict's out on that one. No, this was God's vindication that Jesus truly was who he claimed to be, the son of God. They said in John chapter 10, you being a man, make yourself to be God. And they declared blasphemy. And that was the accusation. That's why he went to the cross, historically speaking, as a blasphemer. But when God raised Jesus from the grave, it vindicated him. He is no blasphemer. He truly is who he claimed to be. That was God's blue check mark on Jesus. Authenticated. Yeah, he really is the real deal. And then whatever he taught, you know, that was validated as well. Teachings like, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he truly was God's son his beloved, the one in whom he is well-pleased, and he is the only one that can save you from your sin. He's the only one that was ever sinless. He's the only one extending a hand, offering to reach out, help you, and save you. And so God never even owed us any of this. It is us, if we're being honest, that have turned our backs on God. It is us that have lived lives that have disappointed him. 
And a lot of times, rather than face the music, we, wa- we want to just kind of hide from that then, right? It's like, no, face it. It's godly sorrow that produces repentance unto salvation. Don't have the type of sorrow like a Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus, and he was sorrowful for what he did. He wept about it. But he had the type of sorrow where he turned his back on the Lord. He could have gone running to Jesus. He didn't. Remember Peter? Peter denied the Lord. He cursed and said, I don't know the man. And when he locked eyes with Jesus, imagine how that must have felt. Right after that, he went away and he wept bitterly. But then he sees Jesus again. And that next time he sees Jesus, what did he do? He went running into the arms of the Lord. So it's not just, oh, sorry I got caught. You know, sorry you feel that way. It's I'm so sorry, I wanna change. That's what true repentance is. And so can you say that about yourself? Have you found yourself in a place like Naaman where you're in this unfixable problem? You've tried all of your own ways. You can't wash away your own problems. But then you hear about this God of Israel. You see what Jesus has done. Are you in this place where you say, you know what? Lord, please forgive me. I've been trying to do this on my own and I can't do it my own way. I fling myself upon your mercy. Call out to the Savior. That's why we call him the Savior. What does he save you from? Your sin. And only he could do that. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, your Lord, you've turned from your sin, guess what? He'll do the heavy lifting. Just like the God of Israel that wiped away that leprosy, the New Testament says, repent and be changed that your sins may be blotted out that times refreshing may come. For me, it was March 14, 2007, as an active duty Navy SEAL attending this church thing, thinking that I'm just punching my card in. No, I'm sucked in. I realized this is it, and this is for real. And I attended church, I don't know how many times before, but it never sunk in. But this night, it hits, and I realized this is what I ought to do, that this is what I was missing all this time, a right relationship with my creator, Jesus, you know, all these other things, they leave you hungry, thirsty for more, never satisfied. Jesus says, you drink of my living water, you'll never thirst again. Never thirst again in what sense? In the sense that you are complete. So everything else, it's like decaf. It just doesn't deliver, right? (laughs) But man, when you got that right relationship with the Lord, that's when you could really turn things around. You bring the Lord into the temple things that you do. So I can go back to being a seal and actually enjoy it in a way I never enjoyed it before in its proper category, and I would just say, I'm a seal for Christ. Whatever you do in word or deed, do on the name of the Lord Jesus, I'm a seal for Christ. You can go back to the corporate world, construction world, stay-at-home mom, all for Christ. When you bring Christ into the temporal things that you do, that in and of themselves only bear temporal significance, nope, now you're infusing it with the Lord. Now those things, now they echo in eternity. So fast forward that final operation, I'm uh, walking with the, needless to say, I never went to that keg of beer. I forgot about that thing, right? Years later, I had to just trash it, get rid of it. And uh, it was funny because I actually, my dad uncovered it right in front of me by surprise. He's doing some deep spring cleaning. I'm just visiting home and the garage. And he jumps back. He goes, what is this? And I go, oh, I, I took it me a second. I'm like, remember that night we all went to church? I got a funny story to share with you about my original plans for that evening. And so, just having this right relationship with the Lord to live is Christ. In my mind, to die is gain. Like if I did die, do me a favor. I'm gonna be absent the body, present with the Lord. But in the meantime, I got some brothers on my left and right I need to fight for. And uh, that would be a shame for a family to have to bury their child. So I got, you know, I got a desire to live still, fight for that. 
where we're getting set up on this ambush and we're getting shot at from three different directions, taking what's called effective fire. I mean, their rounds are being very effective. All the odds are against you. I'm seeing their rounds coming out because they're using Tracer. And it's three different directions all at once. You got to pick a direction and just go. And I'm just trying to do what we do best in the team. Shoot, move, communicate. The assault leader's coming over the radio, giving us some direction. My weapon that could really reach out and touch some people is touching people. And against all the odds, we wind up killing those that wanted to fight to the death driving back those that wanted to not fight anymore. And we captured the guy we're going after. We got in there. We got him. Wounded, but alive. And when he's there, no longer a lethal threat to us, what do we do? Well, we don't kill him all and let God sort it out. Go back to that, that kid looking through a TV screen, thinking about what he would like to do if I got my hands on one of these guys. This guy here now, for all I know, he was celebrating what happened that day. Well, I get given the responsibility to carry this guy into our own hospital by my assault leader. And I remember carrying this guy, thinking this is so strange. This is literally the last thing I'm doing in Iraq is carrying one of these guys in our own hospital. And there was that come to Jesus while I was on SEAL Team 1. So I'm looking down, just so close. It was like his face is right here. He can't see me because we got his eyes covered up, but we're bringing him into a hospital. I'm thinking to myself, man, you are so lucky I became a Christian. I don't know how I would handle this moment right here. And so in a really weird, strange sort of turn of events. That's the last thing I ever did in Iraq was pass off one of these guys in our own hospital. Last thing I'd ever think I'd be doing. But let's remember, it doesn't always work out so great where everyone comes back home in one piece or alive. And uh, just closing here, let's remember that the freedoms aren't free. And a good example of that would be Michael Mansour, who is a U.S. Navy SEAL. And when he's in a place called Ramadi, Iraq, on, on top of a roof providing cover for other SEALs that were out there on the road, from some unknown location, an insurgent threw a hand grenade up there on the roof and it bounced off his chest and fell to the dark. And if you can imagine, he had an exit set up just a step turn away. He just had to get around a corner. But the thing was, is that there's other seals on the roof with him. They didn't have time to make it past this grenade to the exit. So what's he do? He yells to them grenade so that they could take cover. And he throws himself over the top covering it. And it went off. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. He suffered and died on that roof. But because of what he did, Every single one of these other guys on the roof, they all lived. Well, is that not a demonstration of the truth of these words? Greater love has no one than this one that lays down his life for his friends. My friend Scott, I think he's a, a picture of it as well. One of the last things he was saying is perhaps, a, you know, when I go over there, perhaps I can make a difference. And so although there are these awful things that have happened, I did not want to talk. I did not talk about any of that for years. I've realized that's foolish not to do because he died one death. Why allow the memory also die as well. And I see him as a picture of what Jesus has done at the cross. And so think of the cross this way. These guys reflect the cross. That just as Michael Monsoor covered a grenade so others could live, Jesus at the cross covered our sin so that we could live on with him in eternity. And as my friend Scott, he put it all out there. He was killed, hung from that bridge, but he was over there for freedom's sake. Hey, never forget that Jesus, he was killed and he was hung, wasn't he? From the cross of Calvary so that we could be set free from the eternal consequences of our own sin. And so greater love is known than this one that lays down his life for his friends. You can see it in warriors like Mike Monsoor, Scott Helvinson, and so many others that have gone before us. But just now, behold the cross. That's the proper perspective of that King of Kings, that Lord of Lords. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God the Father sent his son down into the world to die for you because he desires a relationship with you. And in a sense, in order for you to go to hell, 
it's like sometimes parents say, over my dead body, you have to literally go over Jesus' dead body. You gotta disrespect him like that. Like, thanks, no thanks. But for those that truly do have a sense of gratitude and thanks, C.S. Lewis says, there's two types in the end. You know, there's those that their love for sin outweighs their love for the creator. And they say, you know what? I choose this over you. God, I'd be like, all right, I'll let you bear hug that down into the lake of fire. You don't want anything to do with me? He's not gonna force you. But if you come to a point where we love him because he first loved us, you are wowed, you are wooed. Look at what he has done. And you say, God, my love for you outweighs my love for this junk. For those that depart from it, they forsake it. They repent of their sin and they throw themselves upon his mercy and ask him, save me, because he will save you. He's the savior. And be my Lord for those that do. The reward is great. Forgiveness of sin, eternity in heaven. Not just that Elaine to be in. God's hand could be upon the things then that you're doing while you're here on earth. And so Jesus says, if you want that, it's kind of like that naming thing. If anyone wants to come after me, they must deny self. You humble yourself, deny self, and declare your faith and trust in him. And so we're gonna bow our heads and pray together and open up an opportunity for anyone here to take Jesus up on his word, not my word, his word, to confess him. So Father, we come before you thankful for uh, these freedoms that we have here in America. While they do still exist, remembering those that have gone before us and paid the ultimate price, remembering those that are serving right now, and we just pray for their protection. We pray they sense your presence as they're being a living sacrifice standing in the gap. And Lord, now we focus our attention on your son, Jesus, who laid down his life so that we could have eternal life. I just pray for everyone here in this room right now that they would get a sense, Lord, that they are not here by accident, that just as it says in your word, you have predetermined our appointed times, the times that we would be in, the boundaries of our dwelling, that they would be here right now, so that perhaps, and here's their responsibility, perhaps they would seek you and reach out for you, though you're not far. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would give everyone here the strength of conviction that your spirit would come and do what Jesus says it would come to do, to come in and give that conviction of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so please open hearts and minds right now, Lord. And I just wanna speak to those of you that are here with your eyes closed, heads bowed. If you find yourself here this morning, maybe realizing that this does speak to you, you have been playing the part of Naaman. You are this other man on the outside, this other woman in front of coworkers and family members and friends, when in reality, underneath it all, there are these other issues going on. Just take a moment to reflect, who are you? Who are you really when you're in your room, the lights are off and all you're left with is your own thoughts. You know who that person is. And God is well aware. He knows who that person is. There's nothing covered that won't be revealed. But here's the good news is that he doesn't wanna point a finger at you. He doesn't wanna try and rub your nose in it. What he wants to do is, is take it off of you, take that burden, look to the cross, his son died for you. He wants to set you free and he wants to welcome you into the family. But remember, you gotta do the name and thing, it's humbling yourself. What could possibly get in the way? Just pride and ego. And so if you're prepared to do that, to humble yourself before God and say, God, your way, not my way. And I wanna put my faith and trust in Jesus to be my savior and my Lord. I would love nothing more than to lead those of you that are in that place in a prayer. And this is a prayer where we do just that. We confess our sin and we ask Jesus to be 
our Savior. We believe he's the risen Lord. If you're prepared to do that, wherever you are, I just ask if that's you, would you lift up a hand as we are about to make this commitment to the Lord? Just hold your hand up. And I suggest to you that please hold your hand up all the way as you prepare yourselves like men and women before your creator. Maybe you come into this place thinking that you have done too much wrong, that you're unredeemable, unforgivable. Please don't, don't think that way. Humble yourself a little bit and realize that there's no sin you've ever committed that could outweigh what Jesus has done. Don't flatter yourself. And so some of you here right now, you might be just on the edge. What could possibly be holding you back? Certainly not the Lord. It could be self. It could be pride. Maybe you'd identify as a Christian. You'd call yourself a Christian, much like I did when I was going to church that day. I'm a Christian. It's on my dog tag. But you know that the label on the outside, Christian, does not match up with the living that's going on on the inside and you need an opportunity to come back home, get back on track with the Lord, a recommitment to the Lord. This time is for you as well. So if that is you, would you lift up a hand as well with these? Now, those of you that have your hands up, I just ask as we are about to pray, if your hand is up, I just ask as we pray, stand up to your feet if you really mean it. And if you don't mean it, you can slip your hand back down. It's fine. At least you kind of go into that understanding. It's not really, really a... If you're not fully committed, if, if you can't give the Lord an empty template to work with and be all in with them, then it's, it doesn't work. And so I'd hate for anyone to ever have a false sense if they just went partially in. So if your hand was up, I encourage you to be standing up. But if you're not really ready for the full commitment, Jesus says, count the cost before you go building something. Slip the hand back down. For those of you standing right now, I just ask everyone else, heads bowed, eyes closed, praying for these. But for those of you standing, would you glance up at me? Give me your eyes. We are about to pray together, and this is the biggest commitment you can ever make in all of your life, and it affects all of eternity. And there is a scenario where you could just repeat words out loud and babble them after me as if it's some kind of an incantation, and it will be meaningless. So what you need to do is think about what you say before you say it. Take ownership of these words, and then it will be meaningful. And so that you go into this eyes wide open, this is a commitment where you say, God, I turn from my sin and I believe Jesus is the savior and the risen Lord and I wanna commit myself to you. If you do that, it will be meaningful. And so if you guys are ready to do that, let's pray. Please repeat these words out loud from a sincere heart after me. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but you died on the cross for me and rose again. I turn from my sin now and I ask you to be my savior and be my Lord. Thank you for loving me and dying for me. And help me to follow you from this moment forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.